Welcome to Uncommon Core, where we explore the big ideas in crypto from first principles. This show is hosted by John Charbonneau, co-founder and general partner of DBA, and me, Hasu, strategy lead at Flashbots and advisor to the Lido DAO. Today, Hasu and I sat down with Mike Neuter from the Ethereum Foundation and Chris Hager from Flashbots. We had a great time chatting through PBS, also known as Proposer Builder Separation. We talked about the history of PBS on Ethereum, talking about what it looked like on proof of work, and how that brought us to where we are today with MevBoost on Ethereum right now. We also looked ahead, looking at the future of PBS, asking each other, should we enshrine try PBS or not? And what would that look like? That included talking about really fun new ideas like Pepsi. We also had some fun at the end talking about what should PBS look like on other domains, especially layer twos on Ethereum, like other rollups, where we chatted through why we think it could actually look very, very different on L2s compared to Ethereum itself. Hope you enjoy. What is Proposal Builder Separation or um, short as we know it, PBS? Sure. Uh, so the, the first thing that I'll pick out that we kind of used before, it's the quote from Barnaby is like still my favorite kind of one-liner description of what it really is. Uh, so PBS is first and foremost a design philosophy recognizing that protocol actors may invoke services from third parties in the course of their consensus duties. Um, so like I really like that as just like a, a kind of high-level setting of what it is. Um, because it really, while we look at it in Ethereum as like a very concrete implementation, the reality is it is just kind of a higher level design philosophy of we understand that we're going to have protocol actors that are responsible for certain things. Um, and then there's going to be an economic incentive and for various other reasons for them to outsource um, certain uh, actions to other actors that may not be actually in the protocol. Um, so concretely, the way that like we're used to thinking about that is in the Ethereum world where we have validators, um, one of which who will be the active proposer at a given time um, to propose a block to the rest of the network. Um, and so the reason that we have concretely proposer builder separation here is that we want that proposer to be relatively unsophisticated um, and yet be economically competitive such that we can keep the validator set decentralized so they can outsource the very specialized task um, to this network of specialized block builders, which sit outside the protocol. And those block builders are responsible for building, you know, what is the most optimized block that can extract the most value um, such that they can pass the majority of value back. Um, because Otherwise, what you would have conversely is if we don't have this ability for proposers to kind of uh, interact with this out of protocol market in a relatively trust minimized way, well, then you would simply have like a very clear return to sophistication where the only way to be a competitive proposer would be, okay, well, now you need to be a builder in-house. You need to be super sophisticated and know how to optimize everything. Um, so it's trying to get at the fact that you're going to have these different roles and we need to design like what is the right way to have an interface between these kind of in protocol and out of protocol roles. Um, and right now, the way that that works uh, with MevBoost is kind of a strapped on uh, way of doing that. And like a lot of the research right now that like Mike has been uh, doing over the F is like, how do we kind of maybe bring that a little bit more in-house and like, what should that look like to try to make that interface between the in, in protocol and out of protocol actors uh, even more trustless? Yeah. And I always like to kind of circle back to Vitalik's endgame post. The last sentence of his post is basically the the future of, of many iterations of these designs will probably end up in a world where there's centralized production, decentralized verification, and strong anti-censorship properties. And, you know, he kind of talks about how some ecosystems might might start more centralized in the in the block production world and evolve into into something that that has decentralized verification only. 
Um, and others, you know, could could take different trade-offs in the in the initial state, but ultimately, like we might always end up in that state where we need to firewall off the heavy-duty um, kind of actions that the validators need to take from something that um, you know can be run on a local machine has like credible decentralization um, features. So that's kind of how I like to think about it. Yeah, you spoke to a lot of things that I'm also thinking. Um, I think in particular, it's also a case of there is either an implicit or an explicit auction. And if the auction is implicit, it has a lot more negative externalities and incentives to centralization. And PBS recognizes that not all protocol actors may be able to fulfill um, all the duties in a um, comparatively performant way and need external support for that to also keep the decentralization of the network uh, stable. Yeah, and what I particularly like and kind of why I picked out this this quote is is that it really hones in on PBS as philosophy, right? Um, and um, I think the PBS de-implementation on Ethereum faces a lot of criticism from different directions, um, all great arguments and concerns that we will also go into in this episode. But really, uh, I think that like general idea behind it is one that is extremely sound. And I think that all of you laid out here uh, really well. So with this high level overview out of the way, I'd like to go a bit, uh, you know, a couple of years back um, and uh, hear from you, um, PBS as an idea, where did it start? What is its history? How do we get from there to where we are today? Um, I think historically the the PBS marketplace was a little more um, explicit in the in the Mev Geth world before we had proof of stake merge. So, essentially, in in that scenario, there was you know a few large mining pools that controlled a huge portion of the hash rate. Um, Mev Geth was the ability like provided the ability for for searchers to send bundles to those miners. The searchers were able to send bundles to the miner kind of without worry about the miner stealing them because. Since there were so few, the miner's reputation was was worth more than stealing the the contents of that bundle. So, in that in that regard, um, the the interaction between the searchers and the block producers was was simpler because there were so many fewer block producers. Um, and then I guess as as the merge kind of approached, a lot of people were talking about PBS as a general approach, um, and I think even were considering like holding off on chipping the merge until we had some in protocol version of PBS that that could be accompanying you know the actual the merge hard fork um i think that that was discarded in general because the merge was already you know a huge lift and and adding more complexity to the software and to the spec was <clears throat> kind of just going to slow things down more than necessary and so yeah maybe i'll pass it over to chris here as Flashbot stepped in and, and implemented MevBoost, and that was like the real first PBS in, uh, instantiation out of protocol that, that we saw post-merge. Yeah, I think um, about one year before the merge, uh, Stefan from Flashbots posted the OG MevBoost specification, uh, outlining how proposers could interact with an external block building network. And then work started uh, in the background in in the DevConnect meeting on Math Day in Amsterdam in 22, that was April 22, there was a finalization of all the APIs that were needed. 
And from then on, it was clear that um, everybody is shooting for the merge with PBS, with MathBoost PBS enabled. I think at this point, it was fully unclear how permissioned or permissionless this whole thing will be and how this plays out. But it seemed inevitable that some form of this is going to ship. And yeah, we worked them through uh, the summer to deliver a permissionless relay and open source software that also other relay operators can run and had everything ready in time, just in time for the merge um, um, that included permissionless builder access. Yeah, and it, it might be worth just kind of running through MevBoost as a, as a software for people who aren't familiar. Um, so the idea of MevBoost is there's, there's a third-party actor here that facilitates the auction between the proposer and the builder. And the reason for that is the, the proposer needs to trust that the, the block that the builder produces is both valid and accurately pays them the amount that the, that the builder promised. And the builders can't simply send those blocks to the proposer for them to verify that themselves because the proposer could just steal the MEV from the block and um, in that way, like, take away all the earning from, from the builder themselves. So the relay kind of sits in the middle. It, it facilitates this auction insofar as the builders send a bunch of blocks to the relay and the proposer commits to the highest paying of those blocks um, before they actually see the block contents. So... That's an important feature here, and, and that kind of comes up as, I think it'll probably come up as we think more broadly about EPBS designs, which is that proposers need to commit without seeing the contents of their block uh, um, in order to protect the builders from, from the MEV being stolen. So the current status quo, I guess post-merge, there was maybe like three or four relays running immediately, and now I think we're up to like eight that, that facilitate most of the MevBoost blocks. Um, a bunch of builders are, are sending blocks to those relays and about 95% of validators are hooked up to one of those relays and, and using their um, connection to that relay to source their block production. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm really a sucker for proof of work and kind of the history of it. So I would add that um, in, in some ways there was even a form of, uh, of proposal builder separation before uh, MEV-GAF existed. In the, in the division of labor that existed between a mining pool operator and the workers. Um, because um, the way that it works is the mining pool operator would construct um, the block body and then they would send, um, they would hash the block header once and they would send it to the workers to, to hash it further. And that hash would then have the golden nonce or not, right? So it, you find a bunch of things here. You find block construction because there was only one party that had to do like all of the peering and the validation and the block construction and so on. And also had to invest into latency infrastructure, right? Being like ha having good propagation to other mining pools and to big exchanges and so on. Um, and then you had the workers who did like the actual work on, on, on the encrypted block body, right? So you, you also had this idea of the commit reveal scheme even back then. So it's, it's funny how, how far back um, some of these ideas trace. That, um, we said that we established PBS as a, as a design philosophy, right? And I think you, you already touched on it a little bit, John, when, when you said um, we, we want to protect uh, validators from having kind of to do these duties that are so complicated, so difficult that it leads to an unevenness, you know, in, in, in kind of how much money they make or how well they execute these, these services. So um, tell us a bit more about what are the benefits 
of of PBS as we try to you know unpack this idea of you know let's create a healthy decentralized market structure. Yeah. So the the high level benefit is kind of what uh, Mike was talking about before as well. Um, how like in large part decentralization of uh, the validator set is a, a means to an end primarily. Um, and that's to get certain properties out of them um, and out of the protocol, such as censorship resistance, um, liveness in extreme scenarios, stuff like that. Um, so to get that, uh, we want a decentralized validator set. And then to get the decentralized validator set, we want to make sure to offload all the complexity um, to these other builders to the extent that uh, possible. Um, so that is like the simplest one is just to keep them decentralized. And then the other realization kind of on top of that is, hey, if we have these more specialized, uh, more sophisticated actors that kind of sit next to the protocol that we can like rely on to be economically uh, incentivized to keep building these blocks, we can kind of lean into that and take advantage of it um, as long as their power is sufficiently constrained. Um, so the simple things like that is like, okay, we can have builders do these more complex tasks going forward. The, the clearest example of that being for scaling. Um, so something like the dank sharding design, where instead of, you know, having all of these like different subcommittees where you're building all the, like you, you effectively will now have like one gigantic block with all the data in it. And that is like a relatively more complex task um, to do for one single person to make this larger block, make all the KZG commitments for it, et cetera. But that helps and produces a more efficient scaling design um, and keeps the load on the proposers very light. It's just a realization that, hey, we're going to have these specialized actors anyway because there's clearly an economic incentive for MEV capture reasons for them to exist, like they will need to. So we can take advantage of that, lean into it, and have them do these other tasks that we can kind of push off to them that like someone needs to do in a more efficient manner. And this is a new idea that you're now introducing, right? Because so far we kind of kept it to MEV and 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 kind of just the ordering of transactions. I mean, we touched on some things like then like a mining pool needs latency infrastructure and and good peering and and stuff like that. But now you're really opening almost like an entirely new like much wider design space, right? Yeah, exactly. And even like even kind of more extreme scenarios, I would say, or like kind of pushing the same idea to different layers. Um, it's the same kind of thing where depends on who you ask how uh, viable they are. Uh, but like based rollups as the simple example of like when Vitalik had first uh, had a post probably a few years ago um, on rollups of like what are the different ways that you could do sequencing designs. Like one of the ideas was something that he called like total anarchy at the time. And you basically, instead of having a sequencer for the rollup, it would just be like, you know, what's the first one that lands on chain basically is like that's, you know, that's the block for the rollup. Um, and the reason that didn't work is because like that would just be an absolute mess. Like you have spam on chain, like no one would know who's going to win. Um, it would just be a lot of wasted effort, incredibly inefficient. Like you wouldn't know anything. Um, the reason that like that kind of becomes a more viable design, and like this is something that Justin's post kind of touched on earlier this year called base rollups. It's like, hey, we can lean into the fact that we now like have these more sophisticated and economically rational actors who have this proposer interface where they, you know, the builder for the layer one can effectively be uh, slash the searchers feeding into that can effectively be the sequencers for the rollup and say, hey, like, I'm not going to include these 10 failed attempts to get a rollup block in here. I'm just going to include the like the the blob that is going to be the most efficient one for this rollup. And I'm going to land that one on chain and I'll pass that to the proposer and make sure only that gets in. So it, you can lean into it, um, realizing that there are going to be these economically incentivized parties who are kind of sitting next to the protocol and have this that have them do this kind of additional work, acknowledging that like, hey, they're going to be sitting there anyway. We might as well like lean into them and use them for these different things. So that's another simple example. Um, other things 
of stuff like for statelessness, um, having them create proofs to make that a viable design, um, because otherwise, like you'll need to give the witnesses to the validators for them to be able to be stateless, like leaning into them for all these kinds of different tasks. You realize like there's a lot of stuff that we could lean into the builders and like have them kind of outsource those kind of complexities to them. Yeah, um, complexity can then also increase on the proposal side of pet of of PPS, for instance, in um, Pepsi, the protocol enforced proposal commitments, which are also a form of PBS where there is more arbitrary commitments a proposal can enter into. So this whole design space provides a lot of more opportunities to build interesting things. So it doesn't necessarily, I would say, have to increase the complexity on the proposer a lot. Um, because even if they are entering into these arbitrary commitments, they don't have to be the ones who fulfill them. Um, and this is like something that kind of Barnaby like touched on a bit in like his last FAQ of like where he's talking about like Pepsi boosts and stuff like that, um, where, I mean, outsourcing a full block is just one thing you can outsource. Like they can outsource any of these commitments where a proposer can just be opted into like, hey, here are the commitments that I'm opted into specifically. And the builder, as long as they're aware of those, like they can build a block that's in recognition of those and like they will send them a block that fulfills those conditions um, because if they don't fulfill those conditions, like they know that, you know, they're not going to get their block on chain. It's it's the same kind of incentive as um, builders for the full block auction. As long as like there is a, an interface and awareness of like the builders know that the commitments that they're opted into, like they can kind of build them for them. So if designed well, I would say it doesn't have to increase complexity for the proposers necessarily. Builders can also, I would add, the out of protocol collectors can in general do things that in protocol collectors can't. So in MEV in particular, I think there's two very clear things. Um, they can keep transactions private, right? They can have, like a builder can run a sealed bid auction instead of a, an open bid auction. Um, they can do simulation on the transaction. So they can have, you know, like, um, instead of an all pay auction. And these are some things that, well, a validator could do, but it's, it's like really difficult and it's not possible really to establish this trust, right? And so, ultimately out of protocol, um, kind of the design space is much bigger and it then leads to to a better market structure. Two other features that just kind of jumped to mind when you were describing that, Hazu, is um, cancellations. So like builders can offer bundle cancellations. This is especially important for um, for the centralized exchange arbitragers who need, you know, if, if the centralized exchange price moves against them, they need to be able to cancel a bundle. And also... Um, Oh yeah, like instant confirmations. Like builders could, I mean, it, it kind of de- depends exactly what what type of confirmation the searcher is looking for. But they could they could give some guarantee on the like post state route after a bundle, you know, conditioned on their block winning the the bid. So yeah, there's there's a lot that a builder can do out of the protocol, as you mentioned. In in general, I think we say well, PBS allows validators to stay simple and affordable. And connecting that back to what you said, John. Why do we want that? It's because we want to maximize the censorship resistance of the network, right? Because a lot of that in particular in Ethereum. So when you talk about layer twos, for example, um, they all have assumptions built into their own security model that basically says, you know, the layer one chain can't be censored for, you know, X period of time or something, right? So this is actually kind of the 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 property that, that, we, that we're trying to, to protect. Um, I've seen another argument discussed, and this is really kind of a double-edged sword, but it's it's nonetheless interesting to point out, um, which is the regulatory argument. 
So the argument goes roughly like this, right? So the less discretion um, validators have over the kind of blocks that they build, um, the less they have to be regulated as any kind of financial intermediary, right? And and you would really kind of draw the line here on the far end, like on, on one side of kind of the extreme spectrum, you would have a validator as a, as a like money transmitter right? that basically has to KYC uh, every single person that transacts through them, right? And so it would be like an extremely kind of censored and regulated Ethereum. And on the other end, you have the validator as an ISP or like a fiber uh, cable, right? So it's just like what it transports is just data packages and inspecting all of them would be completely infeasible. And so it really has no discretion over what passes through uh, its pipes. And so I think we are, we kind of like a big idea behind keeping proposing simple and affordable is really to also, I think, boost this argument, right? That that really um, proposing is, um, yeah, it should be kind of, you know, have the least amount of discretion as possible. But uh, when you get there, um, you introduce new problems, right? That we, that we talk about because, yeah, like, it, because we are talking about really also like difficult jobs that the builders do, um, there tends to be, you know, power law um, outcomes in this market. Um, and so, now, all of a sudden, you know, it takes a, a lot fewer things to go wrong uh, to, to kind of censor that market in turn, right? And so, yeah, ultimately, you're not really like solving the problem like easily. You're just like shifting it in some way. Yeah, and it's probably worth just like calling back to immediately post-merge the, the issues around like OFAC compliance and censorship were largely there because the relays... Um, you know, had in, had to commit to to censoring those transactions in some way. So, even though you you allow the the burden of the validators to be shifted to the relay, that still opens up like new regulatory surface that um, that might be smaller than the regulatory surface of the entire validator set. So, yeah, definitely a trade off. And also, you know, in terms of censorship resistance, I think. Inclusion lists and their relationship here is also very interesting, and this is something John and I have discussed a lot. Which is, if you bring back the the censorship resistance properties and and place them back on the shoulders of the validators, now the validator has to opt in to kind of getting these these OFAC or these censored transactions on chain. So, it's it's kind of like okay, I, the responsibility is still somewhere. It's just like who who shoulders it um, at the end of the day. So, yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the interesting things with these designs where, like, it is hard, you know, to say, like, you know, when you're designing inclusion lists or something like that, like, are you designing for a specific regulatory environment in mind where there actually aren't clear regulations? Like, it's pretty hard to actually do that. Um, but, yeah, like, some of the designs like that, you know, if there is a regulatory burden, um, this is also probably where I say, like, not legal advice type thing. I don't actually know. Um, but like some of the designs like that would seem to put more agency kind of on a particular actor where like we're saying one person is enforcing censorship resistance, like they're explicitly saying like you must include this transaction in a block. Um, that maybe looks a little more gray as compared to um, 
something like, and this is one of the reasons that I think that like designs like Suave and other types of encrypted mempools are like, they're very often talked about as an MEV solution. I think that they're like very interesting from the censorship side of things. And like, that is like a very underrated property of them is that like, they seem to be in the best direction of ensuring these properties for people while also giving everyone plausible deniability of no, like, I don't, I don't know what's in there of completely removing that agency from anyone throughout. It's just that like, I see a bunch of white noise and I run my algorithm over it. And like, here's what I get at the end of the day. Um, and like, that is what starts to really look like at the end of the day is like, I'm an ISP, I'm sending data packets around. I don't know what the hell any of them are. And you're just, you're you like, you really are a dumb pipe at every point in the supply chain. So, so like, that is like a very interesting dynamic of them that like, the, I think like does get underrated at times um, is that like, they are very much a censorship tool um, and like making everyone a dumb infra infrastructure provider as opposed to just being, you know, this like MVP solution, which like they are very helpful for, you know, short term privacy for things like, you know, making auctions incentive compatible, et cetera. Um, but the censorship side of things is like very interesting to me for that reason as well. Yeah, very well put. I round it off with, with one more point uh, and then we can move on. But I think what I in particularly like about PBS is that it's, it's basically acknowledging that a division of labor between different parties will happen no matter what. And I think this becomes very clear when you contrast it to kind of, you know, other ordering algorithms, for example, or other forms, how a blocks can be constructed, um, like time-based ordering, right? Because um, you, with, 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 with PBS, you, you really basically acknowledge that there is a market for ordering these transactions with the goal of maximizing um, validator revenue. And so that is the most valuable thing for them to do. Um, and if you don't allow validators to kind of compete on that, you know, to, to maximize kind of the revenue that way, then what you will get is you will get, you know, other forms um, basically of extraction that, that are kind of ultimately much more destructive for the chain. And so you basically say, well, if there's MEV to be extracted, I want it to be an explicit auction. I don't want it to be an implicit auction that's harder to monitor, um, that like leads to spam, that leads to latent like entrenchment of latency advantage players and all of these things. So centralization. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really about saying, you know, the acknowledging that the market will find a way and designing around that. And I think, yeah, this is uh this is some like a, a line of thinking that I think you find in all of Barnaby's uh articles. Have any risks? I was just going to call back to to this idea that you know um, that we mentioned before, which is the the regulatory surface kind of changes um, in terms of centralization, and I guess not even from a regulatory perspective, but just the fact that um, you know in the current status quo, there's essentially like eight to ten relays that are responsible for ninety five percent of Ethereum blocks, and you know eight to ten builders that are that are responsible for producing those blocks. That has some some definite risks in terms of it. Those are the 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 builders, especially, are the ones in in a position to like capitalize most from from the PBS market. They can um, continue to like make make the most money. The relays are are in this weird position where they're kind of a public good, um, but still, the fact that there's so few of them controlling such a huge part of the market is. Um, is kind of anti the ethos, I guess, generally. And one way this actually manifests, not from a economic perspective, but more from just a, a fragility perspective, has showed up in in a few different issues around relay operators and um, their relationship with consensus clients. So 
immediately after the, the Chappella fork, there was a bug in, in the relationship with how Prism interacted with MebBoost. And that resulted in, you know, huge network instability immediately post the hard fork. There was, you know, it took a few epochs for the, the chain to finalize. There was a lot of missed slots. It was full-blown, like, firefighting mode. Um, and that, that comes from the fact that, you know, there's these 10 relays and the, all of the, the software that is, that is running on the, on the validator machines is kind of decoupled from, from this MevBoost external software. So there is, like, consensus stability implications around the, the centralization found in, in particular in um, out-of-protocol PBS systems. I would add to that there is the overall technical complexity of Enshrined PBS. Um, uh, the merge is now basically just a year ago. And the whole year we've been like thinking about uh, moving PBS more in protocol, how to get rid and, and move beyond the relays as trusted actors. And it's uh, super hard challenges where you may need a lot of additional responsibilities. You may need to increase the consensus protocol complexity, which is already pretty hard to, to reason about. And it could introduce new nuanced uh, reorg risks or vulnerabilities. And this is just a thing that is very hard, a very hard problem to get right. So I would say there is a lot of overall technical risk uh, to, uh, on the path to in-protocol PBS. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have like a, a bit more kind of arcane point, but um, I mean, clearly we are seeing that um, proposal builder separation uh, can exist outside the protocol. Um, and so that's you know, where it does so far uh, most of the time. Um, and not all of this stuff is actually maintained by um, Ethereum core developers. And, and so I guess like as someone who was working for the Ethereum foundation, Mike, like what do you think this does to kind of the power dynamics in, in like the Ethereum ecosystem? Is it on the one hand more that like we have to change the definition of what it means to be a core developer or, or is it that, you know, Ethereum should eventually like try to pull everything into the protocol? Like what, what do you think it does to, to the, the, like the invisible kind of power? in the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I would say Barnabé has a really nice post on this. We keep calling, calling him out, but <laughs> he has a post called um, Seeing Like a Protocol, and he defines kind of what, what, it, what it could look like to enshrine different things and, and when to draw the line and say, okay, this is out of protocol versus in protocol. And I, I think part of EPBS and the work that, that I've been focusing on is kind of figuring out um, you know, not only what to enshrine, like what design works for EPBS, whatever, technically speaking, but also like on a more meta level, should we actually do the enshrinement? And one of our recent pieces that, that we wrote with us four actually, um, and a few others was kind of talking about the, the role of PBS and enshrined PBS in the, in the world in which a relay market exists outside of the protocol still. Um, so we'll probably touch on that later, but I guess in the, in the current meta where where MevBoost essentially is core protocol software, I think there's a bit of an an ownership um, mismatch. You know, like the Flashbots org wrote this code, and and it's been like working really well for for the year that has been that's been running post merge. Um, but I think everyone would agree that the testing and tooling and specification around that code is is not at the same level of the core consensus clients. You know, and Part of that is because you know it, it's it's sort of a public good, but it's also um, 
you know, originally written by Flashbots. So I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how the ownership should evolve and, and the politics there. I will say, I guess, one of my big reasons why I like Enshrine PBS is because it makes that, that distinction a lot more clear. Like it draws the line in the sand as like, this is the in-protocol mechanism that we're going to maintain in terms of the consensus spec and the, and the client teams. If you want to go outside of that, you have to rely on, on out-of-protocol software that might inherently be more brittle, more risky, um, et cetera. So, yeah, hopefully that answered your question. Do you think it's more risky for Ethereum that important part of the Ethereum stack are maintained by kind of non-Ethereum foundation teams that may even have a commercial interest? Or do you think it's more risky that it doesn't? Hmm. Yeah, I think... It, it feels more risky in the current state. And, and I'll say, especially right now, it feels like the equilibrium we're in is not stable. Um, the, the relays are kind of fighting for their lives in terms of some of them are, are third party, kind of credibly neutral relays that are trying to get funding from, from grants and other things. Other relays are, are parts of you know, companies and commercial entities that are trying to either monetize or trying to figure out like if this is part of the core business model. Um, and, you know, I think even some of the, the large relay operators now, it's, it's not clear that if we don't find a viable funding mechanism, we'll be around by, you know, the end of the year, for example. So I think um, insofar as we get to a world where there's only like two or three relays, that is much riskier to the protocol um, than the, the current status quo, which seems to be the direction we're headed in. So I would say... Um, yeah, either either enshrining something and and clearly clearly delineating between in protocol and out of protocol PBS, or um, finding a way to ensure that the the MevBoost ecosystem is more stable into the future and more sustainable is is going to be critical in the coming weeks and months. If we see in the protocol that there are some uh, incentives for different. Um, actors to specialize or even the same actor to, to, to specialize in some way that they can make more money, right? Or that they can do additional things for the protocol. Um, I, I feel like we have established PBS almost as kind of the canonical solution to this problem, but th this is not the case at all, right? So I, would, I kind of want to place it in uh, kind of in contrast to some other things that you could also do. Um, so what would you see as like the main kind of schools of thought that are in some way competing with PBS on solving that problem? So in Ethereum, I don't know that there really is a meaningful alternative to PBS, like in the specific Ethereum context, because the way that you like the, the kind of like broad directional alternative to PBS is just completely constraining what the proposer is allowed to do effectively. Um, and like, you know, you, you specify like very concrete rules of like, this is what you must follow. Um, so like some of the fair ordering type, quote unquote, fair um, ordering proposals, um, where you're trying to say like all the consensus participants like enforce upon each other, like this is the ordering that you must follow within this block. Um, so to the extent that that happens, um, there really isn't room to be outsourcing block production at that point, because it's supposed to be at least deterministic of like, this is exactly the process, like the block that you should be outputting out uh, from this. Like the reality is like, you're not going to be able to enshrine something that prescriptive um, in Ethereum generally. 
And so if you assume that there are going to be decentralized participants within the validator set and they're going to have some amount of agency um, to propose a different block, like the natural result of that is there is going like there are going to be different people in the world who have like a better block at different times. And there's going to be an economic incentive for them to kind of like outsource that production at different times. So I don't really think that there is an alternative to PBS to any meaningful extent, like within Ethereum, um, given like a lot of the design constraints that it gives itself um, for what it's optimizing for. And outside of Ethereum? Outside of Ethereum, I think that like you can argue that there are credible alternatives and like the credible alternatives are very opinionated and very app specific. And so those, like you can say that, you know, you don't need to outsource to this arbitrary market because you know we know for our application very specifically like this is the transaction ordering that is going to be welfare maximizing for like what we want to achieve and so we can ingrain very specifically like this is the transaction ordering that like must result um, potentially difficult to achieve that um, but like you can credibly have a mechanism that like works pretty well where I don't think it's like just even reasonably like viable at all to do something like that, like that on Ethereum, which is incredibly opinionated, which is incredibly constrained. I think you can make a credible argument for that in like certain app specific use cases. Um, but the thing is, like even in the app specific use cases, I think that the reality is it is still a spectrum on like how much are you constraining what you're doing. And so like one of the things that I feel like is sometimes seen as an alternative to PBS. Um, is what's called protocol owned building. So this is something that like is uh, more popular in the Cosmos context with like the Skip guys are working on, um, where you know we have these app specific chains, and so they have this notion of protocol owned building, which is you have certain consensus rules that uh, enforce like certain validity conditions upon the blocks. So we have it as part of our consensus in you know a chain like Osmo Osmosis that you know after these trades, like we check if there's an arbitrage, if there's an arbitrage, like it is baked into consensus that that is like that, that cyclic arbitrage is automatically closed and like the funds are distributed how we agreed upon in consensus. Um, there's no way around that. Um, but the thing is, is like, while that is constraining what you are allowed to build as a block, there are still degrees of freedom within that. So there is still like flexibility within that. So you can constrain the search space with something like protocol and building. Um, but depending on how much you constrain the search space, if there are still degrees of freedom, which there very well may be, may very well be um, you can still outsource block production. So you can have protocol and building where you have like certain validity conditions that are enforced, but you could still like the validator can still outsource to some other builder to build a according to those rules. Um, and that's kind of what I was getting back to before um, uh, when I was like mentioning Pepsi briefly with Chris, is that like you don't necessarily have to, just because you have more constraints on the proposer, that doesn't necessarily mean that like there is no more freedom left or that like they have to do it themselves. Pepsi is a similar idea of, Pepsi is a way for proposers to constrain the like the the allowable space of like what kind of block they can propose in much the same way that like protocol and building does. Um, the difference is more that like protocol and building takes the very kind of cosmos approach of, you know, it's app specific and we can reasonably say, you know, for our given application, this is the right way to constrain the, the, the search space of like allowable blocks that like is relatively well welfare optimizing. Um, so like every validator has to go by that commitment. Whereas Pepsi is kind of the like 
Ethereum variation of that where we can't say that because Ethereum is very general purpose. It is like optimizing for very different guarantees. And so you have to allow proposers to be able to like locally make those constraints and those commitments, which are very analogous to what protocol and building like wants to do. Um, but in like a very generic context of like constraining, you know, what is the block that I'm going to output kind of at the end of the day. So I like... Like a lot of things are viewed as uh, alternatives to PBS, and I think that like that is like kind of one of the things that like I try to like hammer out more is like PBS isn't just supposed to refer to like this is the concrete implementation that we see on Ethereum today. It is just like the acknowledgement of like there is probably going to be a separation between different actors, and there is a spectrum of like what that separation is and like how much we constrain what those different actors can do. Um, and I think that we're like starting to see that increasingly across different ecosystems. So, like PBS really is a spectrum of like what kind of constraints are you putting on different people and like what is the interaction between them. Yeah. An another thing that came to mind here is that um, especially in the Ethereum context, the ordering of a, s a set of transactions could be worth different to different actors, right? Like a certain block might be worth a lot to a builder only because they can can close the second leg of the ARB on a centralized exchange, you know, whereas that that block itself might be worth a lot less to to a validator that produced it locally um, because they don't have the liquidity on the centralized exchange. So there seems to be like, yeah, with, with such a general purpose um, design, it, it doesn't seem that viable to, to just say, okay, this has to be the most valuable block according to everyone's view. So this block becomes canonical like by that definition, you know. And and additionally, just the idea of um, coming to consensus over the set of transactions that can construct, that can like be eligible to be in a block is is a very difficult thing too, because everyone's in the P2P network, they have a different view of of the world. And yeah, I think that's one of the design challenges that Ethereum faces. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the more you try to constrain, the more you push the auction to happen outside of the protocol, right? Um, because when you, on the one hand, say, I'm going to constrain the validator in some way, like on what block they can build, then all of a sudden now that two things can happen. One is the validator becomes really focused on the things that they, can, that they still can control. For example, where do I run my machine and who is allowed to run it in their machine next to my machine, right? Or second, you really push it kind of to, um, I mean, this is like the most likely thing, but that's, the second thing is really you, you kind of push extraction away from the validator, even it's super unlikely, but to like a searcher market that then happens, uh, you know, in a, in a way that's kind of highly latency uh, optimized that, that has like very strong kind of winner-take-all dynamics um, in MEV and then ultimately um, like in a lot of other things as well. I want to also point the spotlight at one more thing that I think is picking up a little more. When I read Twitter, it, it seems like, you know, a few, it's the same people always, but like a few people are talking about it, which is the idea that why do we have to make validators like small at all? I mean, ultimately, isn't the goal of Ethereum to be useful to people? So shouldn't we start from the idea of what properties should a blockchain have to be the optimal, let's say, base layer? for decentralized finance. And so what is the biggest problem in decentralized finance? Well, it's probably, um, you know, all of liquidity because it's very difficult to be a competitive market maker on Ethereum because you're bleeding so much money to arbitrage, right? And so I think this has kind of been, you know, people are kind of honing in on that as the problem. And so they're asking, well, how can we um, like reduce MEV for IPs, but also for traders? And I think one thing you see is, um, 
well, what if we just lowered the block time a lot, right? For example, you know, fewer blocks means there's less potential to reorder transactions. Um, there's fewer, there's, there's less MEV, market makers can update their bits faster, all of these things, right? Um, what's kind of your view on, on this idea of, well, let's sacrifice, um, you know, some decentralization um, in validators to make Ethereum more useful. As far as the people on Twitter who are saying that, I mean, I'm often one of the people on Twitter who are saying that um, to some extent. And like, that, that's a little bit of what I've like poked at lately. Um, I, I just think it's important to kind of delineate between what is Ethereum's place on that spectrum versus what are the other chains place on that spectrum? Um, because yeah, uh, like there are plenty of more opinionated optimizations um, that Ethereum could make to make it better for traders, better for users, better in these like different very concrete ways. Um, but you are inherently favoring a certain like class of users by doing that over other certain guarantees. And like that that isn't inherently going to be a trade-off with a lot of those changes. And just broad brushstrokes, um, like generally the way that I view it is like that is not Ethereum's primary user is, you know, some low latency trader, um, quite frankly. Um, like m very often other chains things like rollups will optimize more for like what is directly the user the trader like what is their ux what is their latency like all of those things that matter a lot i view that less as like ethereum's primary customer where like rollups are building for those users in large part ethereum is building for rollups um, and other types of like longer term slower use cases that need like really strong guarantees at the end of the day like that which is why like i think it's a very practical decision for a lot of the the reasons for Ethereum to like have a permissionless validator set and like this is some of the stuff that I've touched on like there are trade-offs to a permissionless validator set particularly in the short term of that means that your validators are not going to be able to enforce any kind of like MEV protection it's harder for them to enforce censorship resistance potentially um, it you need to add other mechanisms like inclusion lists but like things like MEV you basically end up pushing it to these out of protocol builders so now because you know a validator on Ethereum probably will you know if I send it out to the public mempool I will get front run I will get sandwiched um what do we do like we push that like private mempool like we push it to a builder as opposed to you know a chain that has a more opinionated validator sets and can have you know a handful of validators that we trust and we say hey like don't front run the users because if you front run them like we're going to kick you out of here and like that actually makes sense as a trade-off for other chains i just don't think that makes sense as a trade-off for ethereum because like it is trying to provide a fundamentally different set of guarantees like if you are looking as a user to use a low latency chain where you can send your things to the public mempool and you're you're not going to get front run and you want to pay low fees, you shouldn't use Ethereum. Like, and I'm just like fine to say that. Like, you should go use a rollup. Like, that's kind of the whole point. Um, Ethereum is just like optimizing for a very different set of trade-offs, so that rollups can optimize for the exact opposite other end of trade-offs, where they can be more guarded and opinionated in, the, in their designs. Where Ethereum is very like trying to be very unopinionated and very robust and very broad in its design goals and like kind of pushing those intricacies over to like different layers of the stack. Um, so generally, like the my response is like those trade-offs do make sense. They just don't necessarily make sense for Ethereum. Um, and like different protocols should have different, you know, spots on that trade-off spectrum, depending on like who is their user, what are the guarantees that they're trying to provide. Uh, changing gears here a little bit. Um, we, we PBS is a design philosophy, but it, it also has an implementation on Ethereum today that's that's called MEV Boost, right? And, and you are one of the main people working on this uh, MEV Boost ecosystem for a long time, Chris. So um, can you describe for us kind of what is what is the current state of 
um, the MEV Boost ecosystem, and then we will transition that a little bit into how it's going to evolve in the future. The current state of the MEV Boost ecosystem. Um, yeah, this is all topic here from um, the software itself to the really ecosystem, to the builder ecosystem, uh, to the protocol. I think the MEV Boost protocol is the one thing that stayed relatively unchanged so far. Um, with the only change right now being the void for four upgrade, um, where we introduce the blobs and they also need to go all the way through the builder network, through the relays to the proposers. And there's a lot of heavy lifting to do here that is all in progress. Um, on the relay side, I think we've reached a somewhat unstable equilibrium with the 10 relays that are providing services. Um, of course, there's the downside of uh, proposers that the more relays they add, they inherit the weakest sec the, the security guarantees of the weakest link. So even though that might be maybe um, looking good on paper to spin up as many relays as possible, in practice for proposers, it uh, often would mean more security guarantees. Uh, relays are too powerful, trusted actors run by private businesses. Um, this is not great for the whole trust and a rogue really can cause a lot of harm um, to proposers, to builders, to the blockchain stability itself. Um, this is something that we are very strongly looking to mitigate uh, on the path to enshrinement. The builder ecosystem is um, constantly changing with the with about like four to five builders producing the majority of the blocks. Uh, I think the top two builders, they have been relatively stable recently. Um, really scan.io is a good website to track it. There is rsync builder and beaver build. And now it is also Titan that are dominating the market with, I would say like almost 70% of the blocks. Then there is um, Flashbots and Builder69 um, with 10% about each. And then a steep drop off to 2% for other builders. So I would say it's like somewhat almost centralized um, set of players here. Uh, it's probably not too easy to, 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 to ramp up. Um, there's a lot of of things these um, uh, high market share builders do to gain it. But yeah, we will, we will see how that shapes up. Um, Software-wise, overall, I think MathBoost is relatively stable now. Um, really, operation is the more demanding task for operators mostly right now. Um, it provides a lot of DOS protection, validity checks, payment checks. Uh, it has a lot of things to do that requires a lot of compute. Um, it's it's not quite easy to run it, but possible. Then there is the performance and latency optimizations that the ultrasound team and Mike in particular has implemented over the past couple of months that um, yeah, also really boosted the inclusion rate of this. So optimistic relaying in particular, which means that um, the guarantees are changed in a, in a certain way that the builder blocks, they are not uh, validated anymore before they reach a proposer. Um, and the proposer might sign blindly to it. And the optimistic relay is basically guarantee a reimbursement in case of a fault. So this is an interesting development that's currently run by the ultrasound relay. And I think some other really, I think, I'm not sure if Bloxrod is also running optimistic mode on some builders. Um, that also has a lot of additional operational overhead. Um, Flashbots is not doing optimistically um, relaying. Yeah, and I think overall, like our focus is moving beyond relays. Um, the sooner, the better. 
Yeah, I was just going to say part of, part of the optimistic um, kind of roadmap and the idea of of making some evolution in the relays is to try and make them actually cheaper to run. So what optimistic relaying does is it tries to simplify the task of being a relay operator because the blocks don't have to be simulated kind of in the same you know, few hundred milliseconds right before the end of the slot. So by by spreading out the simulation over the subsequent slot, the the actual overhead of running a relay could could go down quite significantly. And this is part of kind of this path to hopefully more more sustainable and more economic relays. And as Chris mentioned, the the trade-off here is additional overhead overhead from the relay operation perspective because builders have to be collateralized with the relay and um, you know, if if there's ever any any failure, then that's kind of on the relay to reimburse the proposer for that issue. But yeah, the the kind of long tail goal here is to get to a point where we can explore and and kind of forerun some of the features that would be present in an enshrined PBS mechanism through the existing relay market that we have today. So that's that's kind of the the high level goal of optimistic relaying generally. Yeah, let's stick with that um, for for a bit here. So, ePBS uh, and Shrine PBS. What is it? Um, wh- what is really the central problem that um, that it's it's trying to solve, or that needs to be solved to have ePBS? Yeah, I think the the high level problem is just trying to eliminate the the need for the relay market. So, yes. um, ideally, we want some way to facilitate the auction between the proposer and the builder without needing a trusted third party. And wh- why is it difficult to do that? Yeah, it, it's difficult um, because the the relays provide some services that the the protocol actually, you know, we can try to provide them in the protocol, but they're slightly different in the the way they actually manifest themselves. So, I like in in our recent EPBS um, relays post EPBS post. I think we we described. PBS as kind of a two-part mechanism. It has a commit reveal scheme, which is to um, enforce that the proposer commits to a bid before seeing the actual block. And then it has an unconditional payment mechanism. Um, the relays enforce the unconditional payment mechanism through basically checking the contents of the block because the relays have the block in the clear. They can see, okay, the balance before and after um, the, the block is executed increases for the, for the proposer. So Mike, um, what do all of these things tell us about what's the minimum viable EPBS going to look like? Yeah, so the minimum viable EPBS would be a commit reveal scheme to allow the proposers to commit to a builder block um, and then an unconditional payment mechanism. So the unconditional payment mechanism is important because we no longer have the relay to verify that the payment goes from the builder to the proposer. So the the kind of easiest version of this is what we've proposed called top of block payments. And the requirement here is that the builder submits along with their bid, a valid transaction that pays the proposer the amount that is associated with the bid. So this, um, this along with just enforcing that the proposer kind of at the protocol level can, can sign onto a block header without seeing the block contents is the minimal EPBS instantiation that, um, that we're considering. So I assume that would require then changes to how blocks are work basically in Ethereum, like the format of them. Yeah. So the the important enforcement mechanism here is that if a proposer um, commits to a block, 
and the the builder has a chance basically to reveal their payload and that payload can make it on chain. So the the kind of trade-off in the design space here is how do we ensure that if once the proposer reveals their payload, that payload becomes part of the canonical chain. Um, there's a couple different ways to do this. You can give the builder block fork choice weight explicitly, which is kind of the original line of thought that um, Vitalik's two slot PBS and the kind of the rest of the designs went with. The most recent design we have is called the Payload Timeliness Committee, where there's a committee that specifically attests to the availability of the payload from the builder without actually giving explicit fork choice weight to the builder block. So yeah, it does change the consensus rules. Um, but the, the idea would be that most of the, the structure of the block remains the same. You just have, you have to enforce that if the builder reveals their payload, it, it becomes canonical. And if it doesn't reveal a payload, that the payment is still executed. Right, exactly. Okay, so ePBS is one way that, that PBS is going to evolve, as we have heard. Um, another angle is uh, all of the rollups um, are looking to decentralize their sequencer in some way. So we'll talk about what that means exactly, because different people can have wildly different opinions. Um, but one of the things that they are kind of looking at is, is PBS, but really it's like, it's part of like a much broader design spectrum than you have on, on, on the layer one. So John, can you kind of walk us through like how, uh, to what like degree does like, do we need at all, like some form of PBS on, on layer two and how are these, these different teams thinking about it? Um, so I, I would say broadly, they have a lot more flexibility in their designs um, is the like very TLDR of it, where Ethereum, like kind of as I mentioned before, like as this very uh, strict set of constraints where it's like, you know, we want to be very, you know, generalized, unopinionated, super permissionless, all of those conditions, like it makes it much harder to optimize for. Um, and the reality is rollups are going to have a lot more degrees of flexibility there. So they don't need to have necessarily a gigantic permissionless set of sequencers. They can have potentially one or a handful or some permission set of them. Um, and that just like, it makes it much easier to design the process, like that interface between um, the proposers, who is kind of like the sequencer more or less here, and like some kind of out of protocol builder. Um, so it makes it much easier if you like, you kind of know who all the parties are and like they're able to have like some sort of trust interaction between them for proper execution um, and fulfilling their commitments. So that makes it a lot easier. And the other part of it is also they can be way more opinionated than Ethereum is going to be. So rollups can play around with things like, you know, threshold encryption with some variations of, you know, uh, like first come first serve with the batch auction like Shin's proposal. Um, there, there are going to be a lot of these different variations that are going to be more opinionated and people are going to try different things. It's going to be like basically the better analogy for them in large part is Cosmos compared to Ethereum. Like rollups are the Cosmos app chains of like the Ethereum vision uh, realistically. Like they are not Ethereum itself. Like that is the whole point of like kind of what I was going back to before of like Ethereum makes a certain set of trade-offs that are like very difficult to deal with so that rollups in large part do not have to deal with those and they can optimize for another kind of end of the trade-offs. Um, in large part though, some form of PBS um, is likely going to rise slash be necessary um, in them. Like what that looks like will look very different, but for the same reasons before, of like even when you constrain the search base of like you do certain things like protocol and building or you constrain certain ordering rules, there still are going to potentially be degrees of freedom that like you want to outsource to a competitive market such that like you are getting the best block um, that the sequencers are going to put in there at the end of the day. That makes sense. And another topic that 
we have touched already uh, on uh, in this call is Pepsi. So how does what is Pepsi and how does it relate to PBS? Cool, yeah. So Pepsi is a proposal from Barnabay. Um, it stands for Protocol Enforced Proposer Commitments. And the idea here is that it, it kind of generalizes PBS insofar as expanding the set of commitments that a proposer can make that are enforced at the block validity level. So the idea is in this, in this new design, proposers can sign up for different block validity conditions that are applied to their block. And this, this is kind of often compared to the, the type of commitments that could be made through Eigenlayer. But I think the important distinction is that Eigenlayer commitments are only enforceable kind of at the execution layer, meaning they're only enforceable by slashing the, the stake of the validator kind of after the fact if, if they don't fulfill the commitments that they made. Pepsi is, is kind of a stronger commitment or in my mind, um, kind of closer to the metal of Ethereum in that the commitments are actually part of the, the fork choice rule and part of the, the state transition function. So if a, a proposer commits to something and their block doesn't satisfy that, that constraint, then it's not even able to, to be part of the blockchain because of the commitments that they made. So in, I like to think about the, the difference between EPBS and Pepsi as the difference between um, homogeneous and heterogeneous commitments that the proposer can make. So in, in EPBS, we're saying we're going to specifically enshrine a, a, um, a single version of the mechanism that the proposer and builders like participate in. So that could be a full block auction. So the proposers can commit to a specific block hash. The builder has to reveal a payload that corresponds to that block hash. It could also be more general like the proposer commits that they sell their, their block production rights for the entire slot to the builder. So instead of specifying the, the block that the builder um, has to produce, they say whatever the, the build, like whatever the builder wants they can make as long as it's signed by a specific builder pub key, for example. Um, yeah, in general, like th the space of commitments is just the single commitment that the proposer can make in Enshrined PBS. Pepsi is different in that different proposers can make different commitments from slot to slot. So the slot end proposer could say, I, I only want to sell the, the first 1 million gas of my block. I'm selling it to this builder. The bundle that comes there has to be signed by that builder, for example. Um, but the next proposer, the slot N plus 1 proposer, could commit to selling their entire block to a different builder. And that, that's, that like heterogeneity of the commitments is, I think, the important distinction between EPBS and Pepsi. Could you say that PBS is a kind of very specific commitment protocol in the sense that it allows builders to commit to validators and validators to commit to builders um, in a way that lets them exchange blocks for money without leaking the information and then Pepsi is a kind of highly generalized commitment protocol where both parties can make, I mean, especially validators can make more elaborate commitments to the builders. Yeah, absolutely. I don't see Pepsi and EPBS as like um, mutually exclusive in any way. I see Pepsi as kind of the superset of EPBS. And Barnaby actually mentioned this in his recent um, FAQ. He said, you know, the way to do Pepsi might be to start with limiting the set of commitments that a proposer can make. And that commitment set might just be a single commitment, which is I, I agree to sell my entire block to this builder. Um, and the, the roadmap could evolve to 
kind of open up the space of commitments that the proposers makes. Um, and yeah, that that would be probably the the direction we go if if we decide Pepsi is the right roadmap. And is the idea still to express these commitments as uh, smart contracts? Uh, I think the yeah the implementation details are still very much kind of being ironed out. Um, and yeah, there's there's people thinking specifically about Pepsi Boost, like what that could look like in the MetBoost ecosystem. And um, yeah, I think. The, the research stage of Pepsi is still in the very early days in the same way that most of the EPBS implementations are too. So imagine that Pepsi is live. I know that runs counter to what you just said. It's like still early research, but imagine it's live and it's, there's only two possible commitments that can be made. Yeah? So let's say it's full blocks and I don't know, it's slot auction or it's like auctioning off your block in advance, whatever, right? Something else. Um, so how do I now learn what commitments should I make? Is it basically like I can imagine there's a form of, of math boost or like, you know, some kind of block market, but instead of only showing me what's the highest bid, it also shows me what kind of commitments I have to make. And then how do I kind of decide between those things? Is, am I just continuously just picking whatever the highest bid is the same way that it does today with pretty much no discretion? Yeah, so I guess... Um in Pepsi Boost, like if we did this out of protocol, maybe it's easiest to start there. The the proposer would like broadcast their commitments, and the relay would, as part of the block validity checks that the relay does, they would make sure that the builder, in, um, you know, the builder block that's produced satisfies those conditions. In Pepsi in protocol, I think the the question becomes a little more complicated because. In order to enforce it at the fork choice rule, you really need that commitment to be encoded in the block data somehow. So basically, the, the slot N commitments need to be available for the slot N attesting committee because part of their fork choice rule is going to ensure that those commitments are satisfied by a, a valid block that's produced at slot N. So the, the probable mechanism that, that fits in here is before their slot, the proposer at slot N needs to publicize the commitments that they're willing to make for their slot. And in the slot N-1 block, those commitments are included and encoded in some way that um, that is enforceable by the next round of attestations. Amazing. I think the put up, right? Does anyone have any, any points that they want to make? This is kind of a broad thing, I guess. Um, you can kind of just like as a high level um, way to think of like these kind of proposer commitments and the constraints that you're putting. It is kind of the other side of the coin of like when everyone talks about the new buzzword of intents. It's just like from the opposite end where like this whole notion of, you know, expressing an intent versus an, a, a typical like transaction is like the general idea is you're being very prescriptive in a typical like transaction based model where you're saying like here's the execution trace of like this is exactly the path of this transaction and like this is what will happen. Versus this notion of intense, whatever it means, is like you are generally giving some certain broader set of constraints on like, hey, this doesn't need, you know, I don't want to be so prescriptive of like this is the exact execution path that you're taking. But like, hey, here are the constraints that I, you know, that I'm happy with. As long as anything within like this kind of realm is the result of whatever you do, like I'm happy with that at the end of the day. And then like let someone else go figure out the optimal way to do that. And like very similarly on like, like this proposer commitments thing, it's like it is kind of the other side of the coin of that, where you are saying like, what is the right balance of like, what are the constraints that we 
impose on builders in this scenario from like the proposer side of things, um, as opposed to just having like a very prescriptive mechanism, which is like, I will sign a commitment and you will give me a full block and like, this is it, as, or as opposed to like, hey, what if we could say like, you give me this full block, but I'm going to give you these constraints of like, it's a block, but it has to meet like, it has to have like this certain type of transaction ordering it. And like, I want like this Oracle transaction at the top of the block. And then the rest of it, like you do whatever is like the most like uh, welfare maximizing thing, like whatever you get the most value out of. So it's kind of like both of them have like that similar trade off of like, what is the right way to express these types of constraints in a way that is like practical? Um, because also when you have like absolutely no constraints, um, you know, it starts to become like a potentially intractable problem that is just like too difficult to be useful. And when you're too constrained, you know, you're possibly destroying value because you are enshrining something that is like very concrete. And there's like a broader kind of search space here that like you want to you want to kind of work around. Let me ask you a philosophical question. So if in Pepsi, a proposer can, you know, first make a commitment, then a builder has to honor it. And in Swarth, a, uh, a validator can request uh, a block that has certain properties. So they are also, you know, basically enforcing a commitment. Um, and they cannot see the contents of the block. So they have no discretion over like withdrawing um, whatever um, commitment they made. Is it is it the same? Is it different? It's a similar idea from like, kind of two different perspectives, I would say. It's like broadly what you're doing there. It's like both of them are imposing some constraint, whether it's the user side of what they're telling Suave of like, hey, here are the constraints that I want fulfilled. Like it really, it like- I didn't even mean it from the user side, right? It's really the validator that can say, you know, yeah. Suave, get to give me the valuable block that has like property yeah. X, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm saying like basically Suave is the black box that like matches kind of both ends of those. Because what you're saying is like, yes, like the validator can tell Suave like, hey, give me a block that like satisfies these conditions. And then on the other side of them, the user is like sending things into Swap saying like, hey, here are my transactions. Just do something with them that like satisfies, you know, my kind of constraints. And then Swap is that thing kind of in the middle that takes like, okay, here are the validators constraints. Here are the constraints that all the users like that they gave me. And now I can match those together. What is like the optimal uh, like outcome of this? Like, send it along to the proposer and like now they can kick it out. What do we learn from all of this? Okay. One thing, I guess, commitments are very powerful. <laughs> Anything else? Any takeaways from you guys uh, on this episode Episode before we wrap up? Uh, like the, the biggest high level thing for me is just like honestly kind of goes back to the thing that we said in the first place is like a lot of the criticism around PBS is just like very misguided in that it's like it's really a criticism of like a specific mechanism that Ethereum has in place and is looking at. It is not really a criticism of the idea that like, hey, there's naturally going to be a division of labor for like certain kinds of specialization. And even when you make opinionated, you know, protocol owned building type stuff, that doesn't mean that there it's impossible to have any kind of like division of labor. Um, so it's just realizing that like there is always going to be this kind of separation of roles to some extent. And you just need to like understand in the context of like your own protocol, like what is the right place on that trade-off spectrum of like, does it just look like a very simple, very dumb, like, hey, I sign a commitment, you give me a full block and like, that's it. Or is it a very opinionated kind of interaction where like there's some kind of outsource, but like you're giving a lot of constraints and a lot of enforcement over that. It's just like, it's a different trade-off spectrum and like different protocols should have like a different spot on that. It's not like a PBS is good or PBS is bad. It's just like, Different uh, kind of versions of it make sense in different places. Well said. Overall, I think um, what is clear is that enshrining PBS is hard. It's a challenge. I think we have been making really good progress as a community towards that. And I think it, it makes sense to start 
like we did with MathBoost, with a out-of-protocol way to experiment and then iterating towards enshrining it. And yeah, I think I'm very excited to see where it's going next and, and working on it with all of you guys. Okay, fantastic. So thank you guys so much um, for the discussion. Thanks for having us on. Thanks, guys. Thanks, it was nice being here. Hey, John, what did you think about this episode? Well, it took us like five tries or something like that over the past month, but it was worth it. Um, it was a lot of fun doing this one. Uh, so I, I guess for a background for the for the listeners, uh, we first tried to do this episode, I think like over a month ago. We did it uh, in Vienna where like the, the four of us and then Tomas and Tony had like spent a week together right after ETCC, which was a ton of fun. Uh, jamming on like all the PBS. Tomas from Flashbots and Tony Washtada from yeah. the Ethereum Foundation. Um, spent like a week jamming on the PBS stuff and then we tried to record it at the end of the week and just absolute like awful audio quality on the laptop. Took a few tries to do it. Um, finally recorded it a couple weeks ago mm -hmm. and now we're finally doing the recap. Uh, currently in the middle of SBC for me. Um, so finally getting to put it together but it was, it was a lot of fun doing this one. Yeah, it's been a long way coming. I'm, I'm really glad, glad to, to put this out. <laughs> what was for you the highlight of the episode? The highlight for me, I'd probably say talking about Pepsi. Um, that's kind of, it's at least the most fun thing for me at the moment because I feel like it's the most probably under talked about thing recently compared to like what will be talked about um, upcoming at least a little bit of like it's an idea that feels like it's been kick, kicking around for a while that like Barnaby had brought up last year um, and that like kind of went away after that for like a few months it was like kind of this like fun thought experiment thing and then especially in the last few months or so it seems to be just kind of coming back like much more meaningfully um, I also am probably biased, like front of my mind, because I just came from listening to Barnaby give a presentation on Pepsi like two or three hours ago. Um, so it's kind of front of mind for me. Um, but it it is very interesting because like there's clearly a lot of thought being given on like like what should really PBS um, look like to the extent that it's enshrined in the protocol. And like there's a very, very wide design space on like the types of commitments that like uh, it kind of makes sense to potentially have. And potentially even in the shorter term of out of protocol versions of that stuff like Pepsi Boost, and um, and in particular, I mean, like you had just sent me the link right before this of like MevBoost Plus mm -hmm. and MevBoost Plus Plus, which is like the idea from Eigenlayer, um, which touches on a lot of the same ideas. Mm -hmm. And the like the the tougher part with like those kinds of constructions. Um, so so for brief context, uh, we'll we'll link it in the show notes, but. Um, for the listeners, like MevBoost Plus and MevBoost Plus Plus, they're like ideas from Eigenlayer, which are basically partial blocks auctions, where you can allow like the proposer to opt into restaking commitments, where they can say like, hey, I agree that I'm going to sell the top half of this block, I'm going to agree to this, and then I'll get the block body, and then after that I can add in, you know, whatever I want at the bottom of the block. And there's various reasons why like partial block auctions might be interesting, um, but like the initial cited reason of why this came up um, actually a year ago now, almost to the date, I remember it first came up at SPC last year, was like, it, particularly as a censorship tool mm -hmm. of similar to the idea of inclusion list. It's a way for proposers to like give them back agency of like, okay, even if the builder is censoring, you know, I only have to sell them the top of the block. That's what has the value in it anyway. And then I can stick something in the bottom of the block. Um, the, the tougher part of doing kind of this stuff in much more putting the control in the proposer's 
hands as opposed to having the protocol enforce mm -hmm. proposer commitments is the fact that the proposer can still deviate from this. So the like these ones that are secured by restaking are, are very challenged in the fact that the proposer can deviate from this. So like, let's say that they want to just, they agree to do the top of the block, mm -hmm. but they can make more than they'll be slashed by deviating from that, then they're incentivized to do so. Yeah. Um, and like the simplest example of that is like, even if, um, you have like say a sandwich trade in there that is you know it might be for a small amount of profit but like as we've seen with the low card crusader like unbundling that could be a very profitable thing to unbundle mm -hmm. so it might be worth it if you know if they ever got sent a bundle through mevboost plus to be like hey i'm going to unbundle this and then just get slashed my 30 you know 2 eth or whatever it's like um you know the max effect of balance change could really help with that which is really the idea of combining many validators into one right um, so a single validator wouldn't just have 32 EVE staked to it, but it, it could have, you know, hundreds or thousands of EVE yeah. really. And in that case, there would be much more value available for slashing. So it's interesting, right? Max effective balance, they want it for very different reasons, but it's, it could also help here. So it is possible to even do that without max effective balance. Uh, that is like a clearer way to do it. But it is possible if someone just opts in to the, re it, like they could just opt in for their restaking commitment of just like, hey, I tie all of these together. So like when they tie in the first place, like they just tie in like, okay, if I screw up with this proposer, yeah. you know, all of these say 10 proposers are all linked, like you could slash all of them too. Yeah, like a shared, shared yeah. identity layer on top yeah. or something. The problem with doing that kind of thing is obviously like that becomes super centralizing of like, okay, well now you need a million dollars to make a commitment and like now the small guy can't do that anymore so like that's the kind of trade-off um the nice way to solve it is you have it be protocol enforced these types of commitments now it's it's the it's no longer a hey i just you know i lose my 32 eth if i deviate from this thing mm -hmm. it's if i try to deviate this from this thing the entire testing committee will just reject the block as invalid um so seeing that design space get played out a little bit more is like very interesting to see um and it's like it's clearly getting more thought in the last couple of months which has been a lot of fun so it's top of mind for a bunch of people, but do you think it will be big in terms of impact? Do you, do you think it will be implemented? Do you think it will be heavily used? I still have mixed thoughts on this. My, I definitely think some forms of it will happen. Um, I think that there is going to be certainly enough incentive to do something like Pepsi Boost. Um, whether it makes its way to be in protocol, I am very mixed on. Um, that I don't have as high a confidence. It feels very likely that someone will do something like a Pepsi boost out of protocol. Um, like there are various commitments that you can enforce them at a different layer where like you basically just rely as opposed to like as opposed to the MevBoost plus type thing where like you give the you you're relying on the proposers to do this. You can just basically hand that off to a relay where like you trust the relay to enforce the commitments. Mm -hmm. Um so like something like that like definitely makes sense. And I think that there are variations of this which could be interesting, which people are probably going to be worth experimenting with. Does it get to the point where it makes it into the protocol for Ethereum? That's where I have a lot of questions. Um, it's, it's much harder to tell. Like they are very fundamentally useful things that these commitments can make, mm -hmm. um, which is why you like you will definitely see these types of things um, happen on a lot of other chains that are very opinionated, like we talked about with like the protocol and building type stuff. Yeah, um, those are for like those are specific implementations of Pepsi in a sense, where like Pepsi is the very general sense of that. Um, so 
it's difficult for me to say on Ethereum that like if that something like that would ever make its way into the protocol. It's also incredibly early stages of like what would like there is no yeah. concrete implementation of like what something like Pepsi would look like. It's just like the very fun thing at, at the moment to like at least think about of like it's a very broad generalization of PBS, which is super interesting um, because it does seem like there's a lot of consideration right now of like what if at all, should EPBS look like? Mm -hmm. um, and that, like rethinking it from first principles and like that kind of leads you to, okay, what is the most general idea possible that we can put on top of a potential EPBS? And like, it's something like Pepsi, which is cool. Yeah, whether we do it or not, I think it's good to basically explore the entire design space yeah. and think almost as the most extreme option that can be built, like the most generalized. And then, yeah, yeah I mean, it may be the case that we land somewhere that's totally different from that, right? But yeah. I, I think it's like... This is something like totally like tangent, but this is something that I think I learned over like the two years that I'm doing strategy work at, at Flashbots and, and, and Lido as well, which is, you know, don't stop at like, there's a human bias if you generated one good option to just stop and do it, you know, and you really have to force yourself actively to keep asking, you know, and what else, and what else, and what else, and <laughs> it's so difficult, but it's so important. And I think for protocol design, even more. And so I, I think I, I, I can really see that um, at work here. Yeah. And I think they've done a good job of that with EPBS in particular, where it kind of felt like, uh, you know, a year, year and a half ago or whatever, it felt like, oh, like this two-slot PBS design, like this is what we're definitely going to do in the short term. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, this seems like it works. Um, yeah. And you could implement it. And I, I like that there's been a lot more just fundamental consideration, certainly throughout the course of this year of, mm -hmm. okay, just like from first principles, like why do we really want this thing? What in, like what yeah. in the first place are the properties that we need out of it? Do we even need to enshrine something to get those properties? Um, and are there better ways, like more general ways to do it? And like mm -hmm. a lot of that exploration, I think is really valuable um, yeah. and is producing a lot of very interesting stuff that like probably gets implemented to some extent. Uh, but like, even if some of it doesn't get implemented on Ethereum, like it's very valuable research that's going to be incredibly useful for like a lot of L2s who are thinking, going to be thinking about the same ideas as they go through this and yeah. who are going to be even more likely to experiment. Like, sure, we're going to like, we'll go use this thing. Like, this sounds really valuable. Yeah, I mean, for me, fundamentally, if I now see a proposal that is just an implementation, you know, <laughs> that doesn't start with, um, okay, here's a description of the problem that we're trying to solve, you know, here are all of the constraints. Oh, and here's like five different things that would be possible. And here are the trade-offs. And for reasons X, Y, Z, we would suggest to use that one, but it like deserves more research. You know, that's the kind of, I think, clarity of thinking that you need in the future to yeah. make any changes to Ethereum or really to any kind of open protocol. And if I don't see that, I'm, you know, almost like by default, I'm against, you know, <laughs> just, um, but I think we're, we're increasingly kind of moving towards that and it's very good to see. Yeah. yeah I'd, I'd so one thing that I really liked and I don't, it's, that kind of came out in the episode, I think really well is um, that PBS is not an implementation kind of building on that previous point, right? PBS really is a design philosophy that is in itself extremely broad, right? All it really says is there are incentives for division of labor in the protocol or like framing it differently for protocol actors to outsource part of their duties to uh, to external actors who, who might be more specialized. And then those are explicitly not in the protocol. But what the protocol can do 
is provide you know like an as expressive and like as trustless as possible interface uh, as it can um, to to make it so that that this outsourcing really becomes as easy and uh, like as fair and as egalitarian as possible. Because if it doesn't, then what you see is you know some protocol actors might be better at outsourcing than others, and um, and this is kind of what we saw initially with you know MEV in kind of pre-proposal uh, builder separation days, right? Where there wasn't such a trustless interface um, and like a, a way for validators or mining pools to really discover, okay, so who are the searchers, you know? Uh, I should be working with and 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 now the builders and so on and so um yeah just like zooming out basically and and looking at at this entire thing as a design philosophy that, that that's really like strongly rooted in in kind of fairness and decentralization of the protocol that was for me I would say um the highlight yeah yeah I like that yeah, and it's definitely been really interesting to see. I've noticed this more over the past several months, particularly as Pepsi has like gotten a bit more attention, is a lot of, it's a bit what we talked about in the episode of where a lot of these ideas that are almost thought about as opposites of each other, of like the Ethereum PBS, and then there's like the Cosmos protocol on building or the more opinionated things, you start to realize when you start to do the more soul searching of like, okay, fundamentally, what are these things? And you think look at things like Pepsi, and you realize like how many parallels actually across those different systems there are. And hey, they actually work really well together. It's not like this one or this one. Yeah. They like very much do fit together in these different ways. And there's like, they look very different in different ecosystems systems when you have different goals but yeah watching how the pieces like actually fit together now and it's like you just approached it from different from different ends has been like very cool yeah i have to give you a shout out i think especially for that with um you know your efforts around um uh, proof of governance right which is really i think what what you're doing very effectively is just removing politics and ideology from what should really be kind of a technical subject matter right um just because just because it's ethereum you know, the Ethereum ecosystem and Ethereum on layer one has PBS doesn't mean that, you know, the exact same implementation should also work for, or should also be the right one for layer twos, but have totally different kind of needs and goals and constraints, right? And so it's really about, you know, taking the politics out of it and approaching it from first principles and really seeing, um, well, these are all part of the, the same kind of design family. And um, different implementations work best under different conditions. And, um, you know, they are all fair game, right? It doesn't matter where they were invented. If something was invented in Cosmos or whether it was invented, you know, by the Ethereum yeah. Foundation or was invented by Flashbots, um, you know, we're here to kind of build the best crypto ecosystem that we can. And so, um, yeah, that, this is something that I, I see very um, heavily in, in, in your research. Yeah, appreciate it. One thing that, that you pointed out to me that we didn't talk about much in the episode was the question whether to enshrine um, proposal builder separation or not in Ethereum. Um, how do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, it was weird. I felt bad that we didn't cover this. I feel like it was the most obvious thing for us to cover. And it was also like right after Mike wrote the post too um, on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, like this is a lot of the interesting kind of like, it's really the core question for PBS, but also so many other things tangential to the protocol right now, um, like PBS, uh, restaking Pepsi, like a, lo a lot of them kind of touch different areas where it's like, what is that boundary of the protocol? Mm -hmm. um, 
again, we'll, she'll go look at uh, a bunch of Barnabé's uh, writings and presentations on this, of the, like, the seeing like a protocol and what the boundaries are is great. You, um, should, you should just call the episode the ghost of Barnabé. Pr- pretty much, yeah. Like the ghost of Christmas past or something. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're quoting him for half of it. Um, but yeah, like that, that is a lot of what it is, is like what is fundamentally like kind of the protocol's boundary? What is its role? What should be in protocol? What should be out? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is like the fundamental question that a lot of the researchers at the F are doing on PBS right now um, is that question. And it's been interesting. Um, there's definitely been, I feel like, a bit of a change in this was a lot of what we spoke about at Vienna, particularly after ECC is. So a lot of the reason to do um, and try and PBS, EPBS, um, for a long time was thought of as, okay, we'll do EPBS and then the relays go away. Like that's kind of the reason to do it. And there's starting to be more, I would say, realization lately is that, okay, even if we do EPBS, uh, relays probably stick around or something very much like them in a reduced role, I would say, from where they are today, um, where they're significantly less systemically important and less relied upon and they provide less of an advantage. But like, where there is probably still an incentive to use some sort of out-of-protocol solutions that are probably more optimal than using the enshrined um, PBS protocol. So the some of the simple examples are, so like, even if we do this enshrined PBS, where like there is, you know, this canonical like P2P pool, where like this is where the bids are and this is where you're supposed to listen to, mm-hmm. what are some advantages that, you know, some sort of out-of-protocol actor like a relay could still provincially provide you? Um, so a couple of the simple ones, um, that seem to be pretty important or one of the really simple ones is just flexible payments of like the way that you would do the payments, um, in this kind of, uh, EPBS world would be like, uh, the main idea is probably to do like something called like TOB top of block payments where, mm-hmm. you know, I would be able to, as a builder, like send you a bid that, you know, even if I don't give you the block body, like you could take the payment. Um, so that works well. In most cases, there are certain times where you would want more flexible payments of, let's say this is like a gigantic MEV block where I'm going to get, you know, a thousand ETH in the block or whatever, and I'm only going to be able to give you the bid for that a thousand ETH, like after the execution payload. So I can't send you the like thousand ETH in the top of block payment because like I actually don't have it yet. The only way I could send it to you is like, you know, you need a check that like ended at the end of the block, like, hey, I made the money and like I can actually send it to you. So that's a service that really... The relay is fronting the money, but only atomically. For the relay, it's trustless, right? But that, that is something yeah. that the protocol cannot do. Yeah, they're they're effectively guaranteeing to the proposer, like, hey, don't worry, like the relay is good. Like the, the builder is good for this. Like the block, like they definitely capture it. We're going to pay it to at the end. Yeah. Um, and so like that is one scenario where like it is still potentially useful to have, you know, some sort of third party who's mediating this fair exchange between the proposer and the builders. That may be more of like an edge case one. I'd say the more pointed ones are specifically like through the bidding process of cancellations is one where a lot of these in particular, like the sex decks arbitrager builders, um, they will be like continuously updating their bids throughout the slot. And there are times where they will potentially want to cancel their bids at certain times because, you know, prices moved off chain and I need to like lower my bid actually. Mm-hmm. And so you can't cancel if you broadcast something to a P2P like public mempool. There's no way to do that, but a relay can do that. Of, you know, we just have a limit that like, hey, as a proposer, you can only call get header once. So they'll mm-hmm. call it at the end of the slot and I can cancel before then. Um, could also do private auctions, which is like potentially helpful for some builders who don't want to reveal everything. And then the last thing is just like simple latency. Uh, relays are probably going to be like some latency optimization services probably going to be able to get a faster connection between if they're like absolutely optimized between the builder and the proposer as opposed to sending it just to the uh, to the main like P2P mempool. 
So it's very possible that you would be you would be able to get like your bid, you know, slightly later towards the end if you're using the relay as opposed to the P2P mempool. Um, so it gives you these like on the margin optimizations, and that becomes like the fundamental question of you know, mm-hmm. is this even the relay like that we think of it as as it is today? Uh, like I was going to ask you exactly, and it's like so. Like, is it the relay or is it not? It, like, it is a different, like, it almost is a different role. It's like, it is a just like almost like a latency optimizer. I mean, like, whatever you want to call it. Like, it's not a fundamental role that it's needed anymore to just mediate the fair exchange between the proposers and the builders, where, you know, and that is the like interesting difference is like today, basically, if the re- basically if the relays go down today, mm-hmm. like the whole PBS thing doesn't work really. Yeah. Um, like, there is no interface between the builders and the proposers in this world. If the relays go down, okay, maybe the like latency at the end of the slot is like slightly suboptimal, and there are times where like you can't cancel bids. Like they're optimizations, but it's not like mm. PBS doesn't fundamentally work well. And it's like okay, you got to build box locally now. So it's a it's a very large delta, and like there's sort of like an optimization service at that point, as opposed to this is like a fundamental role in the middle of this thing, and like it doesn't work without them. So it is a very different um, kind of point there. So do you envision that if we build this form of EPBS that that basically makes you know the the, the bits trustless um, would those trustless or in, quote unquote in protocol bits be used even for services where the quote unquote relay would be used as well like can they be used together or would it be either or in, in your mind yeah yeah the the relay could still just like send along those uh, trustless type payments so like they could work together in that form. Um, right. So, like, it, it would it would certainly make sense for them to support the like protocol approved type yeah. um, payment in addition to the flexible payments, like kind of yeah, where be, they're needed. Because the, the in protocol payment doesn't really it ha- doesn't have any downsides, right? It's it's using the P two P layer where the yeah. kind of disadvantage comes from, and so you can use the like, exactly. centralized relay rails, but with the in protocol mm-hmm. trustless payment. Um, yeah. I mean, it's also potentially actually better. I, I should probably point out in one in trustlessness of like you really don't have to trust them, mm-hmm. and in two potentially latency optimization of like if you can avoid having to do the flexible bottom of the block payment. Yeah, that is better because if I get to send the top of the block payment, then the relay doesn't even have to check yeah, yeah. anything. Like they don't need to waste time simulating anything. If the relay has to simulate the block and then check at the bottom, like hey, this is there, um, then that like that does take additional latency. So. Yeah, I mean, something that I really regretted after releasing this post or kind of contributing it is even calling it a relay. Because as yeah. you say, it has yeah. pretty much nothing to do anymore with the relay that we have. Yeah. And so to say that quote unquote relays will stick around um, after EPBS is not accurate. Um, yeah. Because you're just like kind of moving um, the goalposts, you know? It's like, um, <laughs> um, yeah, simply because it's it's not a relay anymore. And so I think yeah. um, I'm landing on the more optimistic side, I would say, on this whole debate that like we should do this. I think it's a good idea. Um, and even if some form of out-of-protocol infrastructure may still be used, like the, the, the like structural importance um, of this infrastructure will be very low, right? And so, yeah, I, I think it's a good idea. Yeah, it, it definitely does seem to be quite additive to put it in there and like yeah to to your point I probably do agree I probably could honestly call them something else because like that is the unclear like like they're not a systemic role it anymore it is just like this kind of additional service where it's unclear like what it, what exactly is the del- like yeah. and that's the it's it's effectively reducing the cost of altruism as a way to put it like massively where the delta today is your options are build a block locally 
or do the full PBS. Yeah. So like there's just a gigantic delta between the two of them where the difference in this world would be, okay, use the PBS, you know, enshrined canonical and you use this latency optimized relay thing. Like maybe you earn like 1% more, like it's it's unclear like what exactly is the number on that. Like yeah. it may be such a small margin that like for most people, it's honestly just like not even worth doing it at that point yeah, yeah. of like, it's such a small optimization. I don't really care. It doesn't even justify the cost and the additional risk of running out of particle software of maintaining mm. this thing. It's just like, forget it. Like the other thing works 99% is good. I don't care about the last like five milliseconds at the end of this thing. And like that exact Delta like does matter and it's unclear exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it is a very fundamentally different role as opposed to like, this is the like central point that is like holding up the whole PBS auction. Yeah, I agree. Um, one more thing that I want to touch on is kind of, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was kind of giving Mike a bit of a hard time asking him about, um, you know, different governance entities um, in Ethereum and like their power distribution, who maintains what, what this means for the decentralization of the overall ecosystem. And um, yeah, kudos, he gave a good answer. Um, I still want to talk about this a bit more with you. So, um, I mean, right now it's, it's pretty much the case. I think that, you know, the Ethereum Foundation is working on EPBS um, with, with the help of various other researchers. I think Flashbots is contributing as are various you know, other parties. Um, meanwhile, um, Flashbots is primarily maintaining MEB Boost and the, th that's where you more have the Ethereum Foundation and support primarily supporting kind of with research. Um, you know, folks like Tony, for example, have done, um, you know, do some great monitoring and data analysis and increasingly also like academia is starting to contribute to this. And so what would you think about the idea of, um, yeah, so on the one hand, you, you could kind of, you know, enshrine it. And I think um, Mike especially was, was kind of hinting at that idea, right? So um, you could resolve this like power um, like I would, it's not a struggle in any sense. It's like you could, you could like um, this separation. You could address it by just you know saying explicitly, okay, PBS is now part of the protocol, and so you know the protocol devs basically also have to work on it, right, and make sure that it it stays up to date and it stays optimal. Um, but the alternative may be um, to basically. Uh, yeah, create like more sustainability and maybe governance, um, you know, around PBS, but outside the protocol. So between these two options, um, you know, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, part of it's a time horizon question um, of, I don't think that you need to like rush to enshrine something because of this. Um, like you definitely want to take your time on it. Um, in an ideal world, yeah, you solve these problems and you enshrine stuff and you don't have to rely on, you know, different companies with different interests to be like funding this stuff and developing it, et cetera. Um, I mean, like it, it is the fundamental like recurring trend with Ethereum of like, I mean, like even like execution charge to rollups. Yeah. I, I mean, like is somewhat of the same trend, honestly, um, of you start to realize like, hey, maybe like this actually works really well if we let the free market just like take this thing and kind of keep innovating it over time. Mm -hmm. Um it particularly becomes like that to depending on your view of you know how much does this thing need to keep being updated over time like that becomes a big part of it quite frankly of if you start to have more confidence of like okay this is a mechanism which is very simple it is very forward compatible like it's not very opinionated this is something which like works and like you know it can last the next 10 years 20 years whatever 
then you feel pretty good about like, okay, we could just try this thing. Like it's really simple. Like it works. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need to like leave people to keep innovating, keep changing this thing over time in the way that like, you know, roll ups or something else, like they're going to keep changing. Um, so part of it changes based on that view. I would say is like, how confident are you that this thing is like actually static and can stay there for a long time at that point? Like you, yeah. you want to enshrine it and you want to put it in the protocol if possible, because like, yeah, just leaving it out to different companies, like, you know, people that have different interests and like that, you know, leads to potentially worse outcomes over time. So it is suboptimal. I would say in the short to medium term, at least, um, I definitely think it makes sense. Like you don't need to rush to do these things. Like the the main pressing result of that, though, is okay. We do need to figure out funding for a lot of the tangential stuff, particularly for relay funding. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, that it that is like the main question out of like this PBS Golden, you know, similar ideas, is that, and this is part of you know part of the benefit of EPBS in my mind is like it gets rid of the relay funding issues at that point like mm-hmm. you should not get any funding like you are a latency optimization service you're not like fundamental to the protocol um, but the the big question today is that we're not there and the relays are pretty fundamental um, to holding up the the PBS process at least for the untrusted participants yeah so in the absence of relays you would have today, like, you know, the top 90% or whatever number of validators and top 90% of builders, like, they're fine. Like, they could trust each other, you know. Yeah. Lido and Beaver build, like, hey, we know each other, we could trust each other, it's fine. Um, but the relays are fundamental to upholding the, hey, that, you know, that last 5%, 10%, whatever that number is, of, like, they would not be trusted to, you know, receive something from a builder. Um, so they are fundamental for that. And as of right now, like they're not a business that's able to, to monetize that. So the question is like, how do, how do we try to fund these as a hopefully, you know, hopefully we have EPBS at some point in the you know, next couple of years, whatever it is. But for today, you know, people have to run these relays, it costs them money and, you know, it may not be profitable for them to do so. So figuring out that is like, that, that is one of the main directives of something like this. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think like how static you can make it. Um, how close you think you are to like something that can be static. I think for me, that is a key determinant to whether you want to pull it into the protocol. Um, I think before that point, it really makes sense to, you know, address kind of the relay sustainability issues. Um, You know, why are we talking about this? I mean, it's because relays basically have a hard time monetizing um, in a market driven way because, you know, they, they basically become too, like if some relays charge fees, they become too easy to bypass. And yeah. to really create um, an incentive to uh, just for a builder basically to run their own relay or for a pool to run their own relay. And at that point, um, you know, they can do it cheaper and better and faster, basically. So it's it's like the current market structure really doesn't support monetization through fees. And to me, yeah. this suggests that what we need is kind of um, an entity, like an independent entity that can support relays through grant funding. And... Um, in my view, this could also solve, you know, some of the other issues, you know, like it could make the governance of MEV Boost more open. Um, it could support the development work um, and, um, yeah, possibly even um, like kind of, you know, govern like the, the not just MEV Boost, but kind of more the umbrella idea of PBS that we have been talking about and, and kind of, um, for example, uh, help layer twos figure out, you know, what they should be doing um, with regards to this. Yeah, certainly on the base layer, depending on where the EPBS road kind of goes. I mean, like, I definitely see that being valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I've mentioned this before. I don't, I, I don't see this needing to play a role for layer twos at all in my mind. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, why not? Um, so, so I give you my case. I give you my okay. case. The okay. case is not, it's not a, at all about sustainability, right? I'm not saying, I'm not saying like um, that entity should fund the research for layer two. So then it would be crazy, okay. right? I think the layer twos can pay for it. Um, okay. And I think it's like, especially they could contribute to something like that um, through like as the grants, like actually like the grantees, like if you will. So um, uh, I, I mean more in the sense that um, there isn't a whole lot of expertise right now um, in building this, right? So you basically like want to bring parties together, right? You want to bring the parties who need it and who can fund it with the parties who actually can, can build it. Um, and to like understand deeply like what goes into making kind of an efficient and robust um, kind of implementation uh, of this. And um, yeah, that's my thinking behind it. What about you? So what exactly would the L2's involvement in this really be then? I mean, like they would be funding it, if anything, not like being a recipient of it. Like I, like I, I don't see why you need another. Oh, sorry. I mean, okay. I maybe used the wrong word. Okay. Yeah, no, they would be funding it, and they would like outsource the building of their form of PBS, possibly to you know the same parties who do it mm -hmm. on layer one, or like kind of this body. Do you think they want to own the building and like maintenance of this? Yes. So I mean, one, I'm influenced by the fact that like I I think that they are very different problems in many ways um, layer ones versus layer twos and I think that different roll-ups also have probably make sense for them to have very different opinionated designs of PBS like it can look very very different from one roll to another um, so part of it is that part of that is also like I think that is something that like fundamentally they do kind of want control over like for some of them it is a pretty important selling point of uh, like what they're going for, like like Arbitrum being kind of the simplest example of like a, a lot of their research around uh, first come first serve and like how that's evolved over time. Like that is a pretty important thing to them of like you know this is what they're saying to users of like hey these are the types of guarantees like we care about a lot. Mm -hmm. So I I don't see them like wanting to outsource like oh hey this like other entity like please tell us how to do PBS. So I don't think they like want to outsource that necessarily. Um, I think that they like having different different teams like having opinionated and different stances on some of these things. So I don't know that like they really need to outsource it. And I think like I think that they have the resources internally to do it, certainly. Um, and like th this is where the like the governance and the ownership of this type, what this type of committee is, mm -hmm. um, like matters a lot. That you obviously do not want it to be that we are outsourcing this to some committee that like has some other agenda behind it, um, that like you know is not aligned with what we're doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I mean I completely agree. Right. I mean it basically whatever PBS um, is developed for layer two has to adhere to their you know policies. Um, I think it would be an unsustainable situation, though, if every layer two had its own implementation of this, um, because it basically becomes like a security nightmare. Um, I mean, you see all of the things that can go wrong on Ethereum layer one already. And so I think standardization, um, like across at least a few shelling points, you know, maybe you have like two to three different flavors and, and they kind of have, you know, their own kind of customization options. Um, mm -hmm or different policies are enforced by governance, right? Like proof of governance style, you have like 
you, have, you do have PBS, but the policy comes from governance and governance like yeah. monitors the builders and whitelists them. I think something like that is probably, um, you know, a good middle way because if, if you really yeah. have like a unique implementation for everyone, I don't know that it's it's very trustworthy, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think what you described there is kind of where I more likely envision it happening is like there are going to be standards within the different verticals of like you start to see this already with like uh, optimism talking about the super chain and the law of chains where, you know, each chain within that super chain can have uh, meaningful flexibility to, you know, hmm. you know, we can have different sequencer designs across and like maybe you do use the shared sequencer, maybe you don't, you know, different yeah. flexibility within that. But that there are certain approved standards of like, hey, you have to abide by this. Yeah. If like you want to be part of this ecosystem. Yeah. And certain opinionated decisions around something like PBS or allowable sequencer designs mm -hmm. is something that you could certainly see falling within there where, you know, hey, within this like optimism super chain, like here are the things that like are acceptable and like these are approved you know, governance stamped of like, this works, yeah. we approve of this, like this works really well. Similarly for like the optimism, uh, sorry, for the Arbitrum kind of stack and like the polygons and the Stark nets and so on. Like within each of those verticals, I would imagine like that core team is doing a lot of research of like, hey, mm -hmm. here are the approved things that like we think work really well. Um, it makes it very easy if, you know, you want to spin yeah. up a new chain within that ecosystem. Because I agree, if like, if literally every single chain out there has to do this, like it's it's insane, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. My guess is like, there are a few basic standards that like may look different from one ecosystem to the next, where like mm. for the Arbitrum one, I mean, for example, of like, they are still pursuing, you know, some variation of first come, first serve, um, whether it's like time boost or whatever. And that is going to look very, very different versus if you do, you know, you slap something like Mev boost on, a, on another roll-up ecosystem system. So I think there will be like different certain standards um, across different ecosystems like that may be useful in different places. Yeah. Um, it's also very important to have standards on the builder side for what it's worth, right? Because you like if you're designing this, then you want basically you want to make it as easy as possible for builders to join and you want them to have the same basically interface that they have to other rollups. Um, yeah. especially in a like, cross-domain world, right? Because like a lot of your value um, basically comes from, um, you know, getting access to the same or making it easy for the same block builders to to build your chain that may also build, you yeah. know, Ethereum, Optimism, Polygon, Arbitrum, whatever. And so I think, yeah, really there's a, a huge um, incentive for standardization of these interfaces. And yeah, I mean, that kind of almost gets us to, you know, the vision for, um, for Suave and like why you would want like a shared mempool, why you want a shared um, block building layer. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And in particular on that, like as you start to think of like, okay, particularly in this future to say that there are many rollups and, you know, they each have some variation of PBS or something that looks similar to it. You know, who are the builders across these ecosystems? I think we probably agree that like we're already in a pretty far from optimal state of like what the builder market on Ethereum looks like, mm -hmm. where you have like two or three entities that build the vast majority of blocks. Um, you know, what is that going to start to look like when we start to talk about like, okay, now we have a bunch of different rollups mm -hmm. and you know, what's the builder market on rollup number 42 going to look like? Yeah. It's probably not going to be like, oh, it's a thousand different people who are like perfectly competitive with each other. Yeah. Uh, I would be rather surprised <laughs> if that's what it looks like. For sure not. And like you start to realize like, okay, like there's a lot of effort being put into Ethereum today and already it's like quite imperfect. Like where does that equilibrium end up? 
and just assuming that like oh there's gonna be a bunch of competitive builders for all of these million different chains uh seems like highly unrealistic and that you probably need a more holistic solution of like okay how do we decentralize this role and like constrain the power more meaningfully so on the point of censorship resistance john um we are seeing a lot of proposals around giving basically proposals more agency right whether it's through inclusion lists or you know MEV boost plus or pepsi um and also like in MEV Boost itself now, there's, um, you know, MinBit, um, I believe, which is a feature that basically lets you build a block locally unless um, the value of the block that you can get from um, the builder market exceeds a certain value. And that value you can, you can configure. So you can basically say, you know, let me build the, the top 70% through MEV Boost and like the bottom 30% locally. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like all ways of giving more agency to the proposer. And like, and I, I think like we fully get the idea of why you would want this. I mean, of course, like you want to make the protocol more censorship resistance, etc. But then, do you think that there's also a market demand from validators to actually use this? A big part of my worry is that there's a market demand to not have it in place. Um, that it's very much the opposite. Um, like. So much of the discussion, um, particularly early on with ideas like inclusion lists and MedBoost Plus, proposer suffixes, was mm-hmm. this trade-off between wanting to give back proposers agency mm-hmm. and like trying to kind of keep them dumb of like, hey, we want to have statelessness, we want to be compatible with these things where like they don't have to enforce these things. Mm-hmm. I think at this point, I pretty confidently feel that the bigger trade-off is realistically just on a like potentially practical like legal and regulatory side of things of mm-hmm. i don't think that most people want to like have the like the agency thrown on them like hey you're the person who enforces censorship resistance of all of these things um where like I, it, it, and it's difficult for anything like ethereum to ever design itself around like trying to guess at like the current estimation of what regulations in a given jurisdiction are. Like you don't want to be designing based on, oh, I as a validator think that like maybe this is okay legally to do. Like the practical reality is like so much of crypto regulation is like, it's incredibly unclear what the guidance is. Um, But it is a very practical, simple point of like, it is very possible that a lot of validators are going to be uncomfortable saying, hey, like, I'm going to enforce that. I'm going to put all of these, you know, OFAC transactions in there. Like, there are a reason that relays and builders are understandably, like, personally uncomfortable doing that. Um, and you would imagine that, like, a lot of large validators are going to have similar stances of, like, if it is unclear regulation-wise, like, what we are supposed to be doing, there may be hesitation to to exercise those rights, even if they were given those rights. Um, so, like, that is, that is a meaningful kind of fear of mine of like is that there's an assumption that if we give proposers the tool to enforce censorship resistance that they will use them mm-hmm. and it, it's like a lot of the other concerns around it was like oh is it you know it's you know they have to be altruistic to use something like an inclusion list like they don't make money by doing it i don't really think that's a concern like it's very negligible those kind of incentives mm-hmm. it is entirely a are people going to feel legally uh like comfortable doing this when like there isn't really upside to them so that is a meaningful question to um in my mind and that is why I've continued to increasingly be interested in the more like privacy side of things of yeah. various forms of encrypted mempools where it is the much more encompassing solution of providing the censorship resistance while also giving absolutely everyone 
plausible deniability effectively throughout the entire supply chain. Yeah. Whereas the more inclusionless and boost plus side of things is we are going to put it squarely on one person's back and say like, hey, this is up to you. Please enforce censorship resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that works fine if you assume that everyone is like willing to do that. It's hard to assume that when you have a permissionless protocol and a lot of large entities who are probably going to end up in those shoes. But removing anyone's agency to do anything at all and you have to let everything through is like kind of seems to be the better long-term solution of like how to provide a lot of these guarantees. So like yeah. it was something that we touched on a bit in the episode of while things like swab and threshold encrypted mempools and like different variations thereof are often are very often presented and they're like, hey, this is an MEV tool. Mm-hmm. They really are a censorship tool just as much. And like those do go very yeah. much hand in hand. And like there's a reason they go hand in hand. Um, and like it is very useful in these kind of situations. Yeah, I completely agree. I I'm I fall on the more bearish camp about any kind of poser agency tools. I think that like there is a design constraint in all of this, and this is that proposers don't want agency, and so a solution that requires them to you know exert agency in my book is not going to solve the problem. I think what you need is you need a solution that's compliant with proposers. Um, not having agency, not wanting agency. And to me, you know, the idea of kind of, you know, an encrypted mempool, an encrypted computing environment where blocks can be built uh, still, you know, where you can have your kind of, you know, efficient block building on top of private data. To me, that is the only solution that I can see to this problem. And yeah, very bullish. It certainly seems the most all-encompassing solution to me. Um, the The question that I still have and why I probably still lean somewhat positive on them is like something like inclusion lists mm-hmm. is it detrimental in any way to add it in there or is it like purely additive so like let's say you added something like inclusion lists and you know in the bad case like mm-hmm. let's say most validators are like hey i am not legally comfortable doing this but you know a good portion of them use it mm-hmm. is that worth implementing probably probably is in my mind and that and that's like yeah. an open question of or maybe they just don't even want that tool available to them in the first <laughs> place for like the reasons described um it, it's it's like nothing is a, a cure-all on these short to medium term solutions but like yeah it does seem to be a valuable tool still nonetheless yeah. and like that's kind of where i am still of like it does help on the margin like there are certainly going to be some amount of validators mm-hmm. who will use this who are comfortable doing so um, I would agree. And like, where is it worth it? Like, what is the tipping point of where it's worth it? Is like, that's what's kind of yeah. what's tougher. I would agree. I mean, the solution to censorship is probably a patchwork of different options yeah. exactly. that all work together, that are used by different parties based on kind of their risk preferences. And I mean, yeah. I don't think inclusion lists hurt in any way. I don't think they will be used heavily, but you can argue the same thing for something like MinBit in, in MathBoost, yeah. right? And exactly. that's also a fair amount of, it's not yeah. a big amount, but it's like, a sufficient amount of the network who use this, right? Yep. And then you can say maybe, you know, for a system like Ethereum, you know, that's okay, you know, like um, to to kind of give the properties that it does that that like at any point, like a sufficient number of, of, of validators should mine um, your transaction. It, it doesn't need to be the case that all of them have to mine it, you know, all the time. And um, I, yep. I think if, if you're really trying to target kind of, you know, the latter option, um, it's probably unfeasible. You know, you're probably going to run your your head against the wall. And um, yeah, I think like it's like pra- pragmatism, I guess, over ideology. It's like a good final word to wrap it up. Which is like, I think this is the, really the the whole idea around PBS, right? That like P- 
PBS really is like the win of, of pragmatism and like realism yeah. about market forces over uh, ideology. Yeah, I will strongly agree on that. I love that as a final note. John, it's been a pleasure. Likewise, took the long road to get this done after five or six tries in a month or so, but uh, apologies to the audience. We'll hopefully be quicker on the next episode, um, but it's a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today. As always, nothing we say here is investment or legal advice. The views expressed by the course are their personal views alone. Please see our podcast description for more disclosures. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe and share it on Twitter. Thanks and goodbye.